0: Let's go and get started this morning, and we will pray, and uh, then we'll dive into our study this morning. So let's pray. Father, we just thank you for another uh, morning we can gather, we can uh, be together to encourage one another, hear from your word. Um, We just pray you bless our time as we study, continue to study Genesis, and um, Lord, just as we see really a foundation for um, our worldview as we look around the world around us, and Uh, We wonder why things are in the state they are. Uh, God, we thank you that your word gives us insight and wisdom as to that. So just help us to uh, take these things into consideration and meditate upon them, to strengthen our faith through them. Uh, So we just pray you bless our time in your word. We pray for the classes downstairs, for kids and for youth, that you would bless that. Help them to, to learn more about your word, that you would just challenge their hearts with it. We pray for our service in just a little bit, that you would challenge us as we look to the book of Colossians and um, or just help us to uh, take some application from your word to seek to live it out, to, to be doers of your word and not just hearers. Uh, and we pray for our ministries this evening as well, that you would bless uh, youth group and kids club. Uh, help us just as we share the gospels, we share the truth of your word, that you would just work in each heart uh, of each kid and each youth as you see fit. So, God, we lift the whole day up to you. Uh, we thank you for this day that we celebrate the resurrection of Christ, that ultimate victory over sin and death, that we, uh, we look forward to just the realization of that victory uh, in the, the final days, Lord. Um, so, God, we just pray that you'd help us to meditate upon your word today, to encourage one another, to minister to others, and most of all, that you'd be glorified in our midst today. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Alright, so you can see we uh, are maybe going to be a little ambitious this morning. I don't know that we'll get all the way through the chapter, but we're going to try to do that. Finish up chapter 3, so verses 7-24, through 24, uh, as these are really um, the consequences of what we looked at last week. Last week we talked about the fall, about Satan or the serpent's temptation of, of Eve and how Adam and Eve both gave in to sin. Uh, and so today we're going to see the, the results, the consequences of their sin uh, in various, very numerous ways. Okay? So let's go ahead and read uh, verses 7 through 24. I know it's kind of a lengthy part, but I think it's good to see the context of uh, the aftermath of their sin. And so we'll read verses 7 to 24, and then we'll see how far we can make it in this chapter, the rest of this chapter. So picking up verse 7. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord, the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. OK, so we see a variety of consequences uh, for Adam, for Eve, for the serpent, for all of earth, all of creation is corrupted. And so we're going to just walk through this passage verse by verse and unpack some of these consequences. What's the first maybe consequence you see there in verse 7 of their sin? Shame, yeah. We could probably even throw in, I mean, a little bit of a nuance, but yeah, guilt and shame, they recognize their nakedness. We left off in chapter 2, prior to the fall, verse 25, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. There's no shame prior to the fall. Now they have this awareness of their nakedness and their shame, there's guilt that come along with this. And so they seek in their own efforts to cover this shame, and what do they do to seek to cover their nakedness and their shame? Okay, they take fig leaves and try to sew them together to cover uh, cover their nakedness, to cover their shame. I, I heard somewhere, I read this somewhere, I couldn't find it this week, but I had read somewhere before that fig leaves, when they're left out in the sun, tend to shrivel up and tend to shrink to just a percentage of their size, and so you can imagine just in their own self-efforts of trying to cover their shame and nakedness, just the inadequacy. So if they're sewing these fig leaves together, there's probably tearing and ripping that go on as they're wearing these. And so they would have been completely inadequate. And even if these fig leaves could have covered their physical nakedness, we know that even that alone wouldn't have covered the shame and the guilt that they felt because of their sin, because of uh, now being uh, that, that relationship with God being broken. And so I love that picture of the fig leaves because we're no different today. Of course, we have clothes today that we cover up with, which is good and right. But um, many times we have a sense of guilt and shame because we realize, especially if we recognize the holy standard of God, we realize how how, how far short we fall of his standard. And yet many times our response is much like Adam and Eve's, to try to cover our shame and guilt ourselves. How do we do that today? What are some ways we seek to cover that shame and guilt in our own efforts? Right? Okay, It it might be, yeah, covering up, lying, putting on a false face. It could be that. What else? Yeah, absolutely. A lot of times it's good works, right? We try to do good deeds we try to go to church and we're doing it in an effort to cover our our sin and shame to almost feel like we're earning bonus points in God's eyes right but scripture tells us elsewhere our our good works are like filthy rags right they're inadequate and just like these fig leaves would have been inadequate to cover uh, Adam and Eve's guilt and shame our good works are inadequate when it comes to to hiding ourselves from a holy God and so we're going to see a little bit later in the passage god's provision and how that points us to the gospel but we see them in this state of guilt and shame seeking to cover that up but we know they couldn't remove that guilt and shame that they felt and so it leads to in verse 8 uh what what's the next consequence you maybe see in verses 8 through 11 if you had to give that a a single title okay and why is that why were they seeking to hide from god They didn't obey him, but there's a sense of an emotion or a feeling they have. It's it's a little it's it's based on their guilt. Absolutely, look at what Adam says in verse um, ten. So God comes down, as it says in verse eight. They they hear the sound of God walking in the garden, um, which you know this this is a picture of. It seems like how, we don't know how long they were in the garden. We talked last week how it seems like it was a short time maybe just a few days even, um, and so I imagine this was a common occurrence where God would come down, where he would commune with them. Um, it could be that God's taking on human form to have that fellowship that communion, which would be uh, the first occurrence of what we call a theophany in scripture, where God takes on human form. You know, you think about um, the three Hebrew children in the fiery furnace, and when they're thrown in there, there's three, but there's the appearance of one like the Son of Man. That would be what we would call a theophany, where it seems like uh, really a pre-incarnate uh, Christ coming down. So Jesus coming down in human form to commune. So this, this is what we see here, probably a time of great fellowship and communion. But now, because of their sin, they hear God coming, and they hide. Okay, They hid themselves. And so now, verse 9, The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Okay? So let me, before we unpack that other question I asked about this consequence, why is God asking this question here? Because later on he says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of life? Is God asking these as though he doesn't know? Does he know what's happened? Is he asking to try to find out what's happened? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a test, right? Many times in Scripture we see questions from God he ultimately knows the answer, but it's a test for us. It's get us thinking about the answer. And giving, as we're going to see, man an opportunity to take responsibility for what he's done, to own up to what he's done. And look at Adam's response in verse um, 10. And here's where I think we see that idea of the consequence. Uh, Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was what? Afraid. So Fear. Because I was naked and I hid myself. So yeah, there's that sense of guilt and shame of their sin, knowing that God is holy, leads to a sense of fear, and they seek to hide. Um, they're hiding. I, I don't know if there's anything to this, but I thought just how crazy it is that they're hiding in the midst of the trees that God's given them for goodness. So they're using those trees now that God's provided for good to hide from Him, to try to hide their sin, because they're, they're living in fear. And so... God asked where they are. We were afraid. Verse 11, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat again? He knows the answer. He knows that Adam's partaken. He knows Adam's heart. But he's giving Adam a chance to respond and say, yes, God, we disobeyed. We rebelled. We are pleading for your mercy and grace. Something like that. And, And who knows what would have happened had that been the response. But verses 12 through 13, we see. I would say another consequence. How does Adam respond to God asking him about his sin and did you partake of this? What does he say in verse 12 and 13? Yeah, plays the blame game, right? So instead of saying, yes, God, I did wrong, who does he blame? Eve? And and I guess the serpent indirectly, but who else? Somebody said, God, right? The woman that you gave me. Right, guy, this is your fault. If you'd give me a better woman, this wouldn't have happened, right? So he's blaming Eve, but he's also indirectly blaming God, right? I thought this was supposed to be your provision to be a helper, and she led me astray. So he blames God for this, when in reality, he should have taken responsibility for his sin. Um, it's interesting, in First Timothy 2.14, it tells us, uh, For Adam was form- formed first, then Eve... And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So it's interesting that as we looked at last week, Eve's temptation and how the serpent tries to create doubt by asking those questions and then flat out lying to Eve. The picture is Eve is is deceived by what he says, whereas it feels like scripture is saying, no, Adam knew what he was doing. He wasn't deceived. He wasn't tricked. He knew full well what he was doing and yet dove in head first to his sin. So if anyone bears the majority of the responsibility here, of course Eve bears responsibility. But Adam, he he was not, as we saw, taking the role which God gave him to be a protector of the woman, to be the one to step in and tell the serpent to buzz off. Instead, he's willfully uh, partaking in this and sinning against God. And that's why, you know, I think throughout scripture, Adam's the one that's given the majority of the responsibility, right? And Romans 5, it says, you know, death entered the world by one man, Adam, right? It's through Adam that our sin nature is passed down. It's through the father's line we kind of see this biblical concept and and we'll unpack that a little bit more. So Adam blames Eve instead of taking responsibility, okay? Then, God, we see questions the woman in verse 13. Uh, The Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? So here's an opportunity for even the woman to say, Um, And and she does say this, that she's deceived, that she ate, but to take responsibility. But again, she blames who in verse 13? The serpent, right? Like I said, he he is to blame for deceiving her, but there's no sense of owning up to to her sin either, okay? She, too, could have taken responsibility, could have confessed it to God, hoping for uh, his grace, his mercy, but instead she tries to shift the blame as well. And so then in verse 14 and 15, uh, God lays out the specific consequences for the serpent. Look at these verses again. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So we talked about how originally this is an animal that's created. um, There's a, a cunningness to this animal a craftiness that's not a bad thing in and of itself, but then Satan is basically possessing the serpent and using those God-given abilities in a false way to deceive Eve, to, to trick her to lie. Um, but So this consequence seems to be directed at the animal, okay, not so much at Satan who's behind it. That, I think verse 15 speaks more to that. And so we might think, well, this seems kind of harsh, right? That Satan's the one that possessed the animal. So why does the animal have to suffer? We, again, think maybe this creature had legs and now, you know, snakes don't have legs. They're, they're meant to crawl in their belly. Um, that may seem harsh. But when you think about it, and you could go to Romans 8, which talks about all of creation has been subjected to futility, right? All of creation has suffered because of Adam and Eve's sins. All animals now die. Um, because of Adam and Eve's sin. So there's an aspect where this is directed at the animal, but there's, of course, an overarching curse that's placed on all of creation. And so um, the, this animal's got to crawl on its belly, um, go, go about its belly. It says, Dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now, snakes, do they actually eat dust? They usually eat rodents or other creatures, right? So I think there's a sense of a figurative picture here that it's going to crawl on the ground in disgrace, right? You know, we use that phrase, eat my dust, right? It's not meant to be taken literally. I think the picture is you're going to be a disgraceful animal that, that's, you know, sca- or, uh, slithers on the ground, you know, basically down there like you're eating dust, okay? Verse 15, I think we see more of the consequence for Satan himself, and this is just an amazing verse. We could spend a lot of time just on verse 15. Um, God says, again, to the serpent, but I think speaking more directly to Satan himself, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Okay? So he promises there's going to be enmity, there's going to be strife between, I think what we could say here is the spiritual seed of Satan and the spiritual seed of those who follow God. And we see this throughout Scripture. We see it fleshed out even in uh, the next few chapters of Genesis that there's almost this picture of those who are the seed of God, They're, they're followers of God, and those who are followers of Satan. Now, ultimately, we know as we look at the New Testament, we're all born as sinners. We're all born as followers of Satan. We're all born in the kingdom of darkness. And so it's not as though... Well, I'm born in special favor, and I'm born as, as an enemy of God. We're all born as enemies, and only through Christ's saving power can we become followers of God by trusting what Jesus has done. But we see this strife of between good and evil, between those who are followers of Satan and those who, by God's grace, have been redeemed and follow God. Okay? So there's an the overarching idea, but I think there's also a more specific picture here of, of, of course, pointing to Christ. Um, and let me ask this, let's step back just a second. Is there anything significant about the idea of the, that phrase, the seed of the woman? Okay, the seed of the woman. So uh, your offspring and her offspring, um, which again is that picture of the, the seed of the woman. Is there anything significant you can think of about that? It points, ultimately, and we we see this fully realized in the New Testament, to the virgin birth of Christ. Um, We could take a step back even further and say, you know, typically, and we see this in Genesis as well, who is the seed usually attributed to, the man or the woman? The man, right? You think of a seed as far as, okay, Abraham, here's his descendants, here's his seed, and you see it usually coming through, The male line. And so that idea of seed is usually attributed to the man. But here, it's kind of odd that it's the seed of the woman. And again, I think that points to this reality of our sin nature, that corruption is passed down through the line of the man. But God, and we see this again fully realized in the New Testament, is going to provide this one who would uh, bruise the head of the serpent or crush the head of the serpent. through, not through man, but through the virgin birth. And so he's not going to be be conceived from a sinful man with a sin nature, but instead, as we see in the New Testament, he's conceived through the power of the, the Holy Spirit, okay? Um, so we see this picture. There's going to be an offspring, a descendant of Eve, um, and, and, and passed down that way that's going to have his, bru- his heel bruised, but in doing so he's going to bruise or crush the head of the serpent, okay? What's that a picture of, ultimately? We had to think of a singular event in which this image of a heel being bruised and a head being crushed, what singular event in history would we look to? Okay, yeah, the crucifixion is his heel being bruised, right? Satan thinks, I've won the battle, right? I've defeated... Uh, this God man, he's dead. He's out of the picture, and ultimately, the resurrection is where we see the head of the snake being crushed, right? And we see the ultimate future reality of that being uh, final, still yet future, but we see that beginning as as Jesus raises from the dead, rises from the dead, and has that ultimate victory over sin, death, and Satan. And so we see this picture here in verse fifteen. This is actually called this verse kind of a technical term, maybe you've heard it or not, called the Proto-Evangelium. Anybody know what that means? Kind of a big word, Proto-Evangelium. Anybody heard that word before? It's just kind of a theological term, but what it means is the first gospel. So here in verse 15, right after the fall of man, uh, in the midst of the consequences of their sin, we see the first mention of the gospel, God's grace, that this is Part of his plan all along, that he has, he's not taken off guard by man's sin. He has a plan in place that one day the serpent's head will be crushed, although his, his heel will be bruised. So we see this first mention of the gospel, uh, the proto-evangelium. So this is just an amazing verse in the midst of Genesis that we see fully realized in the rest of the Old Testament and New Testament through the gospel. And so uh, we see this idea, and, I, and I, I love this verse too in Romans sixteen twenty. Because again, there's a picture of, as believers, do we have strife and enmity with Satan, with that spiritual do we have that spiritual battle as believers? Absolutely. And we long for the day when that battle is finished, right? Um, and I love Romans 16:20, because it uses this imagery of Genesis, and it points, I think, all of the church to that future reality of the snake's head being crushed. Romans 16:20 says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So, even as Paul's writing to the church at Rome, there's this spiritual battle taking place. And yet he encourages them, and I think it's encouragement to us today, that one day that final defeat will be made, right? We, we have the reality of the resurrection today, and we experience victory by putting our faith in Jesus' death and resurrection. But one day... Evil will be no more. Sin and death will be no more. And so we long for that day. And we we see just the picture of this in verse 15. All right, we'll keep moving. Um, We see in verse 16, uh, now it shifts to the consequences directly to the woman. Okay, what are the consequences to the woman in verse 16? I would say there's probably two within this verse. Mm Mm-hmm. So, she's going to have pain in childbearing. Of course, you know, I don't. We talked about, you know, again, we think this is a short time. There's no mention of children being born. If there were children born uh, in this perfect environment, they would be then born without a sin nature because they're outside of Adam. Um, And so it just doesn't seem, you know, Scripture doesn't talk about this at all as though she's had children. So, We can only speculate, would childbirth under these perfect circumstances have been painless? Uh, Would it have just not been very painful at all? We don't know, but we know for sure that part of the consequence is that there's a lot of pain in childbirth today. Um, But I don't think it's just the physical pain of childbirth. What other types of pain might be experienced in bearing children? Not just the physical pain of the moment of delivery, but what other pains might Eve suffer in bearing children. Okay, yeah, knowing they have a sin nature, knowing that they're born into a corrupted world. Um, we're going to see in the next chapter. Knowing that there's—I mean—Cain kills Abel. Right? There's murder that takes place. There's you know all the things that we see in our world, and we can feel that today. Right? We see our world around us. And while there's joy in bringing children into the world, there's also that thought of, man, it's, what's it going to be like for them if the world keeps getting worse and worse, as though it seems. And so we trust God through that, of course. We know that God is sovereign over that, but there's a sense of pain of knowing they're born of a sin nature. We, we pray that they trust Christ, but it's outside of our control. So there's a physical pain, but then there's that emotional pain of, of knowing that they're being brought into a world that's fallen. The other consequence, I would say, verse 16, it says you, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Um, and I have a note in the ESV, uh, the desire shall be towards your husband. So any other translations, um, that second part of verse 16, a little different. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Who's got a different version and would read that second half of that verse? For your husband, okay? Which makes it sound more of a positive thing, right? You're going to desire your husband. Um, any other translations? Okay, so you can see even in translations how they're making an interpretive decision, right? Is it that Eve's now going to really desire her husband even more, or is it going to be Against or contrary to, or to control, I think is a, a good idea. And so, I think, you know, we we always, I feel like, sometimes take a step back until we talked about interpretation uh, prior to studying Genesis. And so, it's good to take some of those things and look at uh, how we can interpret these passages as well. This same phraseology is used in the very next chapter in Genesis four seven. And so, I think, again, the best interpreter of Scripture, the best commentary on Scripture. Is Scripture, so instead of just trying to make a decision ourselves, let's see what Scripture has to say. So Genesis four seven, um, this is talking about you know Cain is distraught because his offerings not accepted, and God says in verse six, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? Then look at verse seven. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, and here's the phrase, sin is crouching at the door, its desire is contrary to you but you must rule over it. So that phrase, its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Same exact phrase used here uh, in the consequence to Eve. Okay? So the picture here in what God's saying to Cain is pretty clear. Look, why are you angry? If you do well, you know, you'll be accepted. Right? But if you don't do well, sin's right there and its desire is what? To, to overcome you. Right? To control you. I think, and I like that word in the NLT that you read, you know, to have control, but what what are you supposed to do? Rule over it. Don't let it control you. Don't let it have dominion over you. You're to rule over it. The same picture is here in Genesis. And so this isn't a a way to say that man is meant to be this authoritarian dictator, right? We see the picture initially in Genesis 3. This is all established prior to the fall. This is not well, you guys were, uh, had the exact same roles. You know, There was no distinguishment between your roles whatsoever, but now that the fall's there, this is how I'm going to order it. This was the order from the beginning, but now because of sin, the woman's going to be desiring uh, in a general, generalized sense to be the authoritarian, to be the one in control in the home. But God still desires the man to be that primary role. Again, we're gonna see, we see this idea fleshed out, especially in the New Testament in those roles between husband and wife. It's not an authoritarian, like I said, dictator-type role. It's a loving headship, and we see it ultimately pictured in the relationship of Christ to the Father, right? How he, they're, they're equal, but he submits to the will of the Father, and that's the picture of that husband and wife dynamic. So her desire is going to be to have control, to be the leader, but God said, no, the husband's going to rule over you. He's going to be the one to take the lead in that role. Okay. Then we move to verse 17 to 19, and we see the consequences for Adam. Um, and, and here we see three verses. So the serpent got two verses, Eve got one verse, the man gets uh, three three verses here. Um, not that these verses are inspired, but it seems like the the more of more the consequences are given to him, and they're in a general sense as well. Uh, verse 17, God says to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree, which I commanded you not, you shall not eat, cursed is the ground because of you. Okay? So now that ground that we talked about would bring forth abundant fruit. It would be a, 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 almost an easier thing to produce fruit, and it would be abundant. Now it's cursed. Um, in pain, you're going to eat of it all the days of your life. You're going to really have to work hard to get the ground to produce fruit. Thorns and thistles, verse 18, it shall bring forth for you. Again, it seems like prior to the fall, thorns, thistles, weeds, those things that make growing uh, plants and things uh, challenging didn't exist. This is all a result of the fall. So thorns, thistles, we could add weeds into that. And you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, right? Because you're working hard for it until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. So now death physically is going to be a result. Now we went back and when God gave this command, he said, if the day you eat it, you will surely die. And I remember uh, Kylie asked, you know, did God lie? Because they didn't die as soon as they ate. They they did die in a spiritual sense. They're separated from God. Right. And they eventually do die physically. Um you know, it's not for another 900. I think 30 years is how long Adam lived, um, but over 900 years. But the consequence is spiritual separation from God, and eventually, the corruption of their their death and them returning to dust. And so, it's really only God's grace that He didn't strike them dead in that moment. And we're going to see God's provision uh, for that as well here in just a few verses. So, here's the consequences to Adam. And then we come to verse 20. Now that that's all happened, here's some of the aftermath as well. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. So up to this point, she's only been referred to as the woman. Um, But here he gives her the name Eve. She eventually becomes the mother of all living. Um, She produces children. Um, You know, hundreds of years of bearing children. The population would have grown pretty quickly. And so she's given this name Eve. And then we come to verse 21. And here's the provision that I was talking about. Verse 21. and The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So what did they use in their own efforts to clothe their shame and their, clothe their nakedness? What, what did they use? Big leaves. And we talked about how they're inadequate. Even if they were adequate to physically cover It never could have removed the guilt and shame they faced. So what does God use to clothe them? Skins. What are skins? Animals. So the first real physical death that happens is God causing animals to basically be sacrificed in place of Adam and Eve. They're the ones that sin. They're the ones that should have physically died, and God could have very well killed them on the spot and started over. But instead we see this first picture of a sacrifice as God kills animals. We don't know what animals they are. Again, if this is a short time frame, to me it makes sense that there are only two of every kind of animal still to this point. So maybe this is a unique animal that we don't have anymore that God killed and now that animal doesn't get to exist. Some said, you know, lamb or sheep because of the law that comes into place. But again, it doesn't seem like there's been time for reproduction to take place. And so, Whatever the case, God, instead of killing uh, them, kills an animal and uses their skins to clothe their nakedness. Okay, So again, we see this fully fleshed out in that Old Testament sacrificial system. When man would sin, they would place their hand on an animal as if to transfer their sin upon that animal, and then God would kill that animal instead of killing them was kind of the picture. And so we see this really put into place from the beginning we see it in the next chapter as Abel is making a sacrifice of an animal Cain's using vegetables and so we see this provision and we ultimately know we go to Hebrews I think it's chapter 9 that really fleshes out that idea of Christ is that perfect sacrifice all this still points ultimately to the gospel and that Jesus was that one that stood in our place that suffered God's wrath for our sin that bore that shame and guilt in our place, and it clothes us in His righteousness that we can, have, we can be free from our shame and guilt by trusting in His provision. And so, again, this points us to the full scale of the gospel and God's provision uh, of clothing them. Okay? Uh, real quick, let's finish up 22 to 24. The Lord God said, Behold, man has become like one of us, and knowing good and evil. Again, you see this picture that's fleshed out the rest of scripture of the trinity there's this conversation between the godhead we would say the father the son the holy spirit man's become like one of us knowing good and evil prior man only knew good and now he's experienced evil not that god has, has experienced evil in the sense that he's partaken in it but he's aware of it now they 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 know not just good they know evil as well and God says, now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man into the east of the garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim. So this is an angel. And a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So no longer can they participate and partake in this tree that God has created for them to be blessed by, to have life through. Um. But how is this, we see this as a punishment, that they can't partake in this, but how is this even seen as God's grace, not allowing them to partake of the tree of life? Can you think of this in a way that this is God demonstrating grace to them? Let me put it this way, because it is kind of hard to think through this, but Adam and Eve, of course, lived a a longer life than anybody lives today, 900-something years. But had they had access to the tree of life, it would have been even longer, right? Um, And so this is God's grace in saying, instead of living forever in a state of corruption, in a state of decay, in a state of sin and death, there will be a day that you perish, that you die. And of course, we see God's provision of eternal life through Jesus, but... It's God's grace in not letting them just live forever in a corrupt world um, with no hope of true life, true eternal life. And so I think there's a measure of God's grace. It is God's judgment against them as well. that They can't partake in this. But I think we see God's grace even here. So they're kicked out of the garden. That beautiful place that God had made just for them is now lost to them. They don't get to participate. There's an angel that's set guard. We talked a a while back about if we could locate Eden. Um, you know, I don't think it's there, but probably because of the changes of the flood, but even if somehow we could find it, I'm guessing it would still be guarded to this point, Um, but I think it's probably been long gone, uh, probably since the flood. So here we see, again, chapter three, things take a turn. Uh, They don't live happily ever after. Their sin that enters the world, and we see the consequences of that sin in the rest of the chapter. So any questions about anything we walk through before we wrap up? We've got probably two minutes we'll say if you have any questions or any thoughts that you wanted to add about these verses. Yes. Yep. Uh Uh-huh. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And and a lot of commentators said what would have happened had they responded with confession agreeing with god repenting you know would things have we definitely see his grace um and ultimately through the gospel we we don't know it works out the way god sees it but yeah there's an opportunity to god knows the answer when he asks us questions today if we if we're reading his word and we're meditating upon things and we you know since the holy spirit convicting us it's a chance to rightly respond um so God does that. I mean, Jesus asked a lot of questions in his ministry, full, knowing full well the answer, but it gets us thinking. It gets us, you know, it reveals our heart. Yeah, Trenus. Yeah, in the sense, it looks like in the context, he's become like one of us in the sense that he knows good and evil. Not just good, God knows everything, and so he knows evil in the sense of its existence, he knows that. Whereas prior to the fall, Adam and Eve only knew good. I think of it almost like a child, there's a sense of innocence. You know, children don't know the full extent of corruption, and we try as hard as we can as parents to keep them from learning the bad side of things, as much as we can and so there's a sense of they're in a perfect state of innocence they don't know anything other than God's good provision um, but God knows that there is good and evil and so now that they've partaken they know good and evil when God says he's become like us again I think it's a picture of what we see fleshed out in the new testament of the trinity so I think it's just we just like in the very beginning God said, let us make man in our image, right? So it's almost the counsel of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit um, that we see again fully fleshed out in the New Testament. So, yeah. All right, it's quarter till. Let's pray. There's a lot of people outside. Quick prayer and then we'll be dismissed. God, we thank you for your word and we pray you'd help us to meditate upon it. Help us to trust you not to cover our shame and guilt through our good works, through covering, trying to cover up our sin through lying or, or whatever means possible god help us to look to the provision of christ his perfect sacrifice that he offers us perfect righteous clothing um that we can we can be free from our shame and guilt and we look forward to the day when we fully realize that and we fully see the enemy defeated sin and death defeated so god help us to to ponder these things and to worship you uh, in response and we pray this in jesus name amen